How many of you guys ever feel out of sorts? Amen. Out of normal. Maybe you're the slightest bit out of routine. Now, some of you function like that. But for, the, for the, those that are laughing are the ones that do. For the rest of us, when you get out of normal, when you get out of your routine, when you return, oftentimes it's a huge relief. I'll give a few examples of this. Last Sunday afternoon and Monday, I was in Bonners Ferry with Abby at a pastors and spouses function for the River Conference, and one of the other pastors got to share a bit. He's bivocational. Um, also a full-time public school teacher. Uh, not too many days before, he had to take eight days of sick leave. Uh, his dad, it was time for, to put his dad on hospice, so he took time away from school. And he was telling us that even with all the, the, the politicalness that happens in schools and even with all the hardships of teaching, it was still so good to go back to the classroom after eight days away because that is what he knew. That was, that was where he was comfortable. That's where his passions lie. It was, it was good for him to return to that routine. Now, maybe, maybe our out-of-routine isn't as big as putting a father in hospice. Maybe it's something as simple as getting the flu. It's flu season, right? A couple people are coughing. Pastor Mike. You know how it is. You get sick, you spend time, whether it's a day, whether it's two days, three days in bed, spending you know, way too much time going from the bed to the bathroom, back to the bed. That first day, you can actually get up, take a shower, eat, eat some breakfast and keep it down, and, and even go to work. It's good, right? Because it, it feels good to return to health, to have your health restored for everybody except Jeff Cates, who's sitting there saying, no, no, that's never good. Perhaps it's, it's like the holiday season that we all just came out of. I know kids love being out of school. I know that uh, having family in town is great. You know, traveling to different things is fun. Celebrating uh, Christmas parties and year-end celebrations, it's all good stuff. But I know that as a parent, and oftentimes as, as professionals, we look forward to January 2nd because it's a return to normal. It's a, a restoration of normalcy. You guys ever been out of routine? Yeah? So this past weekend, not this one, but last weekend, one of the front desk staff at the gym my boys do gymnastics at, she lost her mom suddenly. It was unexpected. Um, and she came back to work four days later. She, she thought she needed to return to normal. And yet, having just gone through the loss of a parent, it's going to be months if not years, until a normalcy returns for her. And perhaps the new normal will not even be the old normal. But whatever, whatever times we get out of our routine, whatever times we get out of, our, out of our habit, when we return, it's good. At least for me, there's always a relief to it. So I was reading our Explore the Bible texts for this week. I couldn't help but wonder, is God calling us to return to something? Is God calling us to restore something, maybe to how things used to be? I hope to answer that question over the next few minutes. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there, a little background as to what takes place in the, the chapters leading up to that. In the very last chapter of Second Chronicles, which is the book before Ezra, we see the Israelite people captured. 
And then they're dispersed, they're scattered all over the place by the Babylonians. See, this was the Lord's punishment for them not listening to all the prophets he had sent to them, saying, hey, return to me, listen to me, follow my ways. When they didn't do that, he scattered them for seven decades. And at the very end of Second Chronicles, the last three verses, it tells of this 70-year exile, and then it speaks of King Cyrus, who was ruling over Babylon at the time. It speaks of his heart being stirred to release the Israelites, to send them back to their homeland, except with a purpose. You're going to see this in Ezra chapter 1. Starts like this. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia's reign, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given to Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. See, this was a God thing. Given the king, the king giving permission for the exiles to return. It was God's movement. It was God working. And he stirred in the leadership of Israel's hearts, too, to also return and begin this work. Verse 5 of chapter 1, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. All their neighbors assisted them, giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for their journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to the voluntary offerings. Now, chapter 2 in Ezra is a list of all the people who returned, as well as a short list of the supplies that made it back to Jerusalem. Which brings us to Ezra chapter 3, which is where our texts are for today. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. You can follow along in your own Bibles. It says, In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in the towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. Verse 4, they celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the festival of shelter began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Verse 7. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. Our text jumped to verse 10. It says, When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. 
And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good, his faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Our text jumps to chapter 6, which we'll look at in a little bit. But as I read these texts from Ezra chapter 3 and Ezra chapter 6, I couldn't help but wondering, is God calling us to return to something, to restore something? Of course, the next question is, return to what? Or restore what? First six chapters of chapter 3 really focus on the rebuilding of the altar, now, the altar, which most of you know, was the place in, which, in, the, in the temple where God's people brought their sacrifices to him. It was the place of burning the animal sacrifices in their entirety, which showed the Israelite people that the first step for a sinful man to approach a holy God was to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent animal. So the altar there in Jerusalem, where the temple had been before it was torn down, was the place where the process took place for the people to be made right with God. And you see, that really is their emphasis in chapter 3, verse 2. It says they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, if you remember from our study in Joshua last year, there was one altar that God had said, okay, people, this is where you bring your sacrifices. When the Israelites had traveled and wandered through the desert on their way prior to taking over the promised land, the altar and the sacrifices took place in the traveling temple, the tabernacle. Now, years later, King Solomon had built this magnificent temple, and the altar was placed in that building. So it was this altar, this one altar, that God had commanded the sacrifices be made that was the emphasis of the first few verses of chapter 3 in Ezra. As I read that, as as I looked at that text, I kept thinking back to even before just the one altar, to the use of altars prior to that. And I thought back to God's people, like Abraham. See, prior to God saying only sacrifice on this one altar, God's people made it a practice to set up altars wherever they were at to worship. Now, you may remember our study in the patriarchs. I mentioned Abraham. He would come to a certain place. He'd set up camp, and then he would set up an altar to worship. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. said, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abraham built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south, set up camp in a hill country with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. There he built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord. Now, this must have picked up uh, his kids and grandkids picked this up because we see his grandson Jacob with the same practice in Genesis 33, verse 18 and following. It says, Later, having traveled all the way from Paddan Aram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob bought the plot of land where he had camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and there he built an altar and named it El Elohi Israel. So God's earliest people, they would build an altar to worship the Lord wherever they found themselves. 
Whatever situations they found themselves, wherever they were, whatever life had them in store, they stopped to worship. They made an altar to worship. You know, as we were singing, I was, I was looking at the words of the songs that Tim had chosen, and several of them just, they jumped out at me like, man, I, I bet we today could be going about our business and, and we, we could stop and worship. I mean, the, the, the song right after offering, I can feel your presence here with me. Suddenly I'm lost within your beauty. You know, the, the next song, Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Or coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about Jesus. Sitting there singing those, thinking, man, we don't have to just be in church on a Sunday morning to worship. Perhaps there's a call back, such as the altars of the people of old, where we could stop and worship whenever. Moses did it before God told him to build one altar. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. It was after this big battle that actually Joshua had just won. The Lord instructed Moses. He said, write down on a scroll this permanent reminder or read it out loud to Joshua. I'm going to erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar there. And he named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Now, not too many chapters later, uh, God officially made the Israelite people his people. He said, are you going to follow me? Yes, we will. Okay, then follow my rules. And he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the first thing he instructs them on after giving them the Ten Commandments was the proper use of altars. Listen to it, Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 and following. The Lord said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. You saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. Build for me an altar made of earth, and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your goat and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural, uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. Thank you. Somebody giggled. I love the fact that God would point this out because you know a bunch of dudes aren't going to think of that. Right? Oh, oh, thank you, Lord. We won't build stairs. Now, more than that, more than that, I love the purpose that God gave for the altars. In verse 24, Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered. And I will come to you and bless you. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered. I think this is where God really spent time poking and prodding at my heart this week. And I'm wondering if he's going to do the same for any of you this morning. I have to ask the question, where is it? that we go to? What, what, what do we do that causes God's name to be remembered? Where is it that we set up our own altars? And, and not in bad ways, not in like sacrilegious false worship types of places that God would frown on, but I, I'm thinking of the altars of Abraham. Where is it that we in our daily lives would stop and say, okay, this is a place where I'm going to focus on God? Are there places like that in your life? 
Perhaps a, a favorite chair in your reading room. And when you sit there, it's a little easier to remember God's name. Where are these altars? Maybe growing up, your, your family altar was around the dinner table. Maybe the altars re- involve bedtime rituals. Maybe, maybe it is that favorite chair and a warm cup of tea or coffee first thing in the morning with your daily bread and your Bible. Perhaps you can find your altar on your favorite nature trail, or, or maybe your altar is with a group of people, like a small group. Maybe that's where God's name is caused to be remembered for you, and that's where he comes and, and blesses you. I guess what I'm asking is, where are your Deuteronomy 11 type places? I mentioned this verse last week. Where are the places at home, going to bed, on the road, getting up, on your doorposts, on your gate type places? Where are the places you talk about God? You bring God's name to memory. Where are those places where you regularly worship God? Where you daily meet with God? Where you cause God's name? Or where he causes his name to be more easily remembered? For my 30th birthday, several years back, uh, my wife built a prayer closet for me. I've, I've mentioned it in the past. It was actually pretty cool. It was under our stairs in the basement, um, a dumpy place that we used to like collect junk. But she just turned it into a fabulous place. She, she covered the underside of the stairs with an old duvet cover and, and then hung up some signs that talked about being still and talked about prayer. And she put pillows in there and a, and a little table with a candle on it. And then she, she hung this sheer curtain that separated that space from the washer and dryer that were immediately behind me. And that sheer curtain, I mean, that space really became a sacred space for me. I could go there and I could breathe and I could feel God's presence. And I know I could pray and worship any place and at any time, but there was something special about that. It was, in, a, in, a, in the very truest of senses, an altar in a way that, you know, that drew God's name to memory for me. Even if the dryer was rolling, my soul could sink deeply into God's soul. Well, then we moved, and there's not an under-the-stairs type place anymore. So maybe that's why God said, hey, is it time to find a new place, James? Maybe for you guys, you found your place of peace somewhere else, walking with a friend. Maybe that place of peace has been around the, the meal table. You know, three times a day, you'd bow your head and, and find God's presence. I guess what I want to ask is, if you've had that place in the back, you had that place in the past and you don't now, what's keeping us from going back to it? What's keeping us from restoring it? Could it be we've lost some passion for meeting with God? Could it be that our, our schedule has changed and our previous favorite time no longer works to meet with God? Maybe that favorite chair of yours was hauled to goodwill by your spouse who was tired of you sitting in it, and the new chair just doesn't work anymore. Perhaps it's because life has got away from us. I was reminded of the reality of this this past Wednesday, uh, which is an Awana day. I grabbed a Sparky, and I said to them, Hey, did you study your verses this past week? No. Oh, well, how come? And they genuinely paused for a moment and said, Well, you know, I guess I'm just too busy. This was an eight-year-old. Have we become too busy 
in our lives, to have that space, that regular space, that altar of sorts to meet with God. If we have, perhaps it's time we reorganize, we reprioritize our day. We go back to what the psalmist talked about. He says in Psalm 5.3, Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my requests to you and I wait expectantly. Now I'm not saying every single one of us needs to become a morning person. Perhaps our time to meet with God is in the afternoon. Perhaps it's in the, in the evening. Perhaps you don't even want a scheduled time, but you're going to be intentional throughout your day to realize, okay, this is the time I'm going to bring my voice to you, Lord. Has life gotten away from us to where we don't do that anymore? Maybe, maybe we have forgotten our altars due to fear. Maybe your God space used to be at work, and then your company got bought out by another company, and you've heard that there's some anti-Christian sentiment, so you no longer take your, your Bible with you, no longer over your lunch break stop to say, okay, God, how can I meet with you today? How can I show others to you? Maybe you're scared that there'll be some public ridicule. And if that is the case, I want you to say you're not alone. People in Ezra felt that same thing. Verse 3 in chapter 3. Even though the residents were afraid of the, even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. They then began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening. If fear of ridicule is what's keeping you from taking time to pause and worship, let me remind you of the words of Jesus. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember that I told you a slave is not greater than a master? Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Naturally they will ridicule you. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God blesses those when people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy for it, he says. Be very glad, for a great award awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. It's fear of ridicule what's kept us from returning to our altar, to our sacred spaces. You know, I've spent time thinking about this idea of the original altar as a place that God's name is remembered. And I have to ask, are we being called to return to that? Our text today in Ezra 3 continues, and we see, we see a shift from the altar to rebuilding the, the entire temple. We saw that in verse 7 when it talked about people being hired as masons and carpenters, and, and logs were bought, and goods were exchanged for those. We see the fruits of the hiring of that labor fulfilled in the passage in Ezra 6. It's in this text that I think we may find some answers as to maybe why we haven't restored. In a very practical way to go about restoring our own altars. But Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. They say this. On April 21st, the returned exiles celebrated Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were ceremonially clean. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. 
The Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the land who had turned from their immoral customs to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Then they celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. There was great joy throughout the land because the Lord had caused the king of Assyria to be favorable to them so that he helped them rebuild the temple, the temple of God, the God of Israel. Finishing the temple... It was big doings for them, very big doings. And we probably should have seen how big a doings it was just by the celebration that the Israelites had put on when they finished pouring the foundations. You saw that in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3. When the builders completed the foundation, the priests put on their robes, they took took their places to blow the trumpets. The Levites, the descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they stood, they they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. He is so faithful. His love endures forever. All the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. So you pour the foundations, and you celebrate, and you celebrate, and you celebrate, and then you work, work, work. That's chapters 4 or 5 in the beginning of chapter 6, and you rebuild the temple, and then you celebrate, and you celebrate, and you celebrate again. In that section, though, in chapter 6, did you catch something? In the midst of the priests putting on their, their Sunday best, in the midst of the ritual Passover meal, in the midst of all the, hoot, the hooting and hollering and, and cymbal clashing, did you catch what I think moved them to such joy? I think it's in verse 21. So the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the, Lord, the land who had turned from their immoral customs to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. There was a returning from exile and a turning from sin. A return and a turn. I've already asked us if we're being called back to our altars. And I've asked what could keep us from that. I think we find the key in verse 21. See, the first thing we see in that verse is the people who were there eating the Passover meal and celebrating were people who had returned from exile. People who were returning from a place that we would call consequence of not listening to God. For not following the directives of his prophets. So I guess it would be fair for me to ask us, are any of us in exile? Could it be that God has allowed us to move away from him because after time and time again of trying to get our attention, we still kept doing our own thing? Could it be that since we didn't listen to his voice, he says, okay, now you won't get to hear my voice because I won't speak to you. Now here's the kicker. If if you're feeling that this morning, God's not going to leave you there. He's got no desire to see you stay stuck in exile. He's calling you back. And perhaps he's stirring your heart to come back. He's not giving up on you, but he is calling you to return to him, which takes action. And I believe I mentioned Joel chapter 2 verse 12 last week. Listen to it again. The prophet says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Return to me. Hear from another prophet, prophet Isaiah. He said, I have swept, this is God speaking, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. 
I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. I would say from our places of exile today, however big or however small they may be, God is once again saying, return to me. Take the steps to return to me. This takes choice and it takes movement. And we must also couple that returning, pair that returning with a genuine turn. Turning away from the things that would keep us from God. Return and turn. I think most of us know what God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. This is a classic call to prayer. God says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them and I will forgive them and I will restore their land. Now, the beautiful thing is, as is evidenced by the beginning of that chapter, when we turn, God not only promises his name to be remembered, but his entire presence to be felt. And look at what happened when Solomon finished praying in the beginning of chapter 7. It says, Fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. This is 2 Chronicles 7, verse 2. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord had filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and they worshipped and they praised the Lord saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Does that sound like something in our text today? Chapter 3, verse 11. It says, With praise and thanks they sang this song to the Lord. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever forever return turn and worship can take place because God's presence will once again be felt if we go back to Ezra chapter 6 verse 21 I want to point out one other thing that jumped out at me says this the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the land who had turned from their immoral customs to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now I'm sure that when the Israelites returned after being scattered, they made it a point to say, God, I'm turning from the ways in which the things we did that caused you to scatter us. The beautiful thing in that verse, though, is you get to see the people around those returned exiles. The ones they've been rubbing shoulders with, the natives in the land, also turning And I would guess it was in response to seeing the exiles returned and turned. And they thought, huh, I want a part of that. I want a piece of what they have. They seem to have something that we don't. So in a sense, this group, they've got renewed altars, a renewed temple, and new places where God's name could be remembered on a regular basis with new people who are following God. I think that's exciting. I think that's reason to celebrate, to to shout about how faithful God is, to break out the trumpets and the cymbals and have everybody hooting and hollering in one great voice. I mean, those people, the the Israelites and the non-Israelites, were returning, were beginning again, and some for the first time, to have places where they regularly remembered God. Places to celebrate God's presence. 
They were, I'd say, putting up new altars of sorts to worship. I've got to imagine, like the the text said in verse 22, that there was an almost unexplainable great joy in the land celebrating this newly rebuilt temple and restored altar and restored relationship with a God whose presence then once again was felt. As I sat there and thought, thought about this, this entire text in this sermon during a week, I thought, you know what, I could, I could begin to imagine something else too. I could imagine a Sunday morning with people, like this place full of people, with people who have throughout Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday have, have spent time at their daily altars, whatever those may be, have spent time personally seeking God. And I had to wonder and imagine more so what would take place if that was the case on a Sunday morning. I mean, I would think, you just think of our, our, our best Sundays here of worship where, where it just is, is awesome. And I think that would just get even better if we'd all taken the time during the week to meet at our personal altars. I think that sounds amazing. And yet even in that, I want to remind us that this isn't our doing. It's something that God would be prompting. It's something that God would be prodding and poking and stirring in our hearts to do. And it would be Him that is moving and Him that is the one who is descending and His presence and His glory out of response to us saying, okay, God, you're number one again. I want to return from wherever I was, wherever I am, and I want to meet you at this altar. And I just think that could be an amazing Sunday and month of Sundays and even more Sundays. And I think that people outside this body would begin to look and say, they've got something that I want. Well, what would that be like? Let's pray. God, as is so often the case, you know, when I get to a Thursday or a Friday or even a Sunday morning, I oftentimes personally think, okay, God, was, was that just for me? Because I know I needed to hear this message this morning. I know that in a lot of ways I need to return to places and ways in which uh, I've done things that have caused your name to be remembered more easily. God, I confess that my life at times has gotten too busy. And I have not put you as priority. God, this morning I want to come back and I want to say you're first. I need your help. I need your stirring on a daily basis. And I need you to be the one doing the moving. God, this morning I wonder if there are others in this body who are feeling the same way. And if there are, God, weigh on their hearts. Weigh on them the need to restore to return and to turn. But God, also remind them that the weight that they feel is not a weight that they have to feel out of guilt, but out of, a, out of a sense that you have already redeemed them. You have already supplied your Passover lamb in Jesus Christ. And he has restored us, and through him, we can come and we can worship. On a Sunday morning, on a Monday morning, on a, on a Tuesday afternoon, on a Wednesday evening, 
God, I thank you that through Jesus, that he can be our altar. God, weigh on us this morning. Stir in us this morning. And if we need to make changes, help us do that. Because we can't do it on our own. We've tried. But we can't do it on our own without you. We're your people. This is your church. And we want to see you moving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.